You are listening to How We Got Loud. I'm your host, Chris Leonard, and I hope you're enjoying this journey with me as I explore stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. This is just the beginning of a long-term project I'm working on. When it comes to the history of live sound, you can find a lot of info, but it's often buried in various parts of the web. I want to create the ultimate place for the history of live sound. What does that look like? I'm not quite sure yet, but we will get there together. We wouldn't have this industry if it wasn't for the people who made it happen. I want to hear the individual stories and get to know people, whether a mix engineer, system tech, to just a local roadie. We have all added value to creating experiences of connecting people to the great universal language of music. These interviews are not intended to be released in chronological order of how the full industry progressed. That part will come in time as this project evolves. The audio industry is relatively young and we still have many people with us from the early days. I intend to speak with as many of them as possible. Today I'm talking with David Dansky, who has been in the business since 1970. Coming from an electrical engineer background, he was well suited to jump into an industry that needed a lot of innovation early on. It's hard to summarize all that David has ventured into over the last 50 years. However, David has spent a lot of his career working with adult contemporary showroom acts like Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Engelbert Humperdinck, Bette Midler, and many more. I mean, I'm mixing, instead of mixing three guitars, keyboards, and maybe a saxophone with drums, I'm mixing, well, not, not anymore. Times have changed. <laughs> and the acts that I work with are gone. So I was there during the heyday of, you know, 14 shows a, a week. But that was a 32-piece band, a 32-piece orchestra. All those textures. Think of an artist who has a box of Crayolas with eight colors in it, and think of the one who has the box with 64 colors in it. That was me. I can have textures and tones, and it was, you know, it was wonderful. And plus the arrangements. You know, I listened to a beautiful string section playing. It's just great. So I love it. It is very apparent David loves what he does. He also has documented so much of his work. So make sure you check out the show notes for a link to the episode page where I will share many of the photos he has sent me. Please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss an episode. I would also like to ask that if you're enjoying it, tell a friend and help spread the word as we all go on this journey together of how we got loud. So, David, I want to I want to jump right to one of the most intriguing pictures that you sent me, uh, which is uh, Frank Sinatra in the round. Now, I, I have done a handful of in the round gigs myself, I, and I know how difficult that can be. Can you can you describe to me what's going on, um, uh, you know, kind of in this picture and and what that system was like? This was a one audio from what I understand, a VIP system. Take, take me back to that time. What, what was happening there? Well, first of all, you have the picture of Sinatra yeah. on the stage. All right, so you don't, you don't need me to show it right now. Nope. Okay. Well, you see how clean that stage is. Even that you, there are no monitors on that stage. There's nothing. And it's because it's Sinatra, so he could hear what he needed to hear. Uh, there were monitors around the edge, and, of course, the orchestra was down off the stage as well. And it was just him. Look, and It was pretty wonderful to work with him. Uh, 
classy act, you know, it was, there was no chit chat, but there was definitely hi, how you doing? That kind of stuff. I had a button once that said it's Sinatra's world and we just live in it. <laughs> and uh, it's exactly what it was. You know, he was in, in his own world and he was the chairman of the board, like they said. So to tour with him. Now, I went out as A1 Audio System Engineer. I was not the mixer. A guy named Bob Kiernan was. And Bob Kiernan had worked with Elvis first. And he was the guy, I believe, who said Elvis has left the building. And with Elvis, it was, you know, 24 spotlights, and that's all you needed to do. So he used to call the spotlights and mix the sound. Wow. So he would have a headset around his head. His ears wouldn't be on. He'd be listening to the show, but the microphone would be in front, and he would do the show. So now for Sinatra, he was doing the same thing. He was mixing lights, calling lights, and mixing sound. And I would set it up for him. And he was an in charge, take charge kind of guy. So it was like, okay, I'm, you know, working with Frank Sinatra. This is very cool. And so I would sit with him during the show and uh, watch him mix. And now because he was doing two jobs at once, I kept saying to myself, oh, he should have done this here and he should have done that there. You know, how every engineer does anyway. But if you're, you can't be 100% on both. It just doesn't work that way. So I was a little frustrated. But at the same time, I was really felt special that I was, there you know uh we did in the rounds and we also did um regular shows like we went to south america and we did shows uh in hotels which that's a whole nother story about how we did his first time in argentina and second time in brazil and uh that's where i got to mix the south american mix so i did mix his show twice i mixed the show that went to south all of south america while bob was mixing the local show and then uh, he was coming to the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. to do a show. And he had a show in Denver like the night before. And Bob wanted to be in L.A. to set it up. So he said, you mix the Denver show, which, of course, I felt honored to be the guy who mixed it. And then Vinny Falcone, his conductor, told me after the show, it was the best the old man ever sounded. So I had my little, you know, my moment there. Absolutely. Frank Sinatra. I got to mix Frank Sinatra and I got the kudos for doing it. That's awesome. And in the round, it was really interesting because uh, that was the only in the round tour I ever did. Mm. And the stage, if you look at it, is not that big. I do it maybe 25 feet across, or maybe 30 feet across. It wasn't a big stage because it was just him. So, and then, of course, the orchestra was took out about, I don't know, maybe 90 degrees of that seating area. And then the rest were people. So we could set up the PA on the ground outside the stage and then just fly it. And I don't know if I sent you those pictures. I think I might have. But that was the VIP system. A1 Audio had this really interesting system. He called it the VIP for vertically integrated power. And it was a self-powered system back in the 70s, which was really unique. Al Stenerskal understood the loading on amplifiers for uh, back EMF and all of that stuff. So they had crown amps in the back and, and uh, the main speaker cabinet was an RCA movie theater speaker that he discovered that had two 15s in it and a lot of air. It was seven feet tall with two 15s and it had a horn and it had ports. And he'd have a, a BGW 750 in the back of that. And that would be uh, one side per speaker. 
And then for the horns, he had another cabinet that fit perfectly on it or in between. They had two 2482 uh, JBL compression drivers on 90-degree horns that were rigid because he jammed that expanding home foam in there. So there was no resonance. You would tap them, and it was like clunk, clunk instead of ring, ring. And then he had a uh, – I don't know how what the degrees were, but he had eight of the JBL bullets with the, with the circular uh, cones in them for the high end. And so he had uh, one half of an amplifier for the two drivers – and one half of an amplifier for the eight drivers. Mm-hmm. And so it was really simple. And then he had this multi-pair connector that went in and just daisy-chained every speaker together. And in the back of the speaker, you could click left, center, or right. So it was really a simple one line from the front of house to the stage, an eight pair, and then daisy-chained throughout the entire PA and get what you wanted. So we could put left, right, left, right, left, right around uh, the flying system and that was really wonderful. And the other thing that he did, because A1 Audio, uh, I know you wanted to talk about A1, so let's talk about that part. Al Seneschal is an actual electrical engineer. He did guidance systems for the military, the Air Force. And then he put all of that knowledge of fail-safe, you know, no room for errors, it must work, into his, his company. So it was an amazing company. One of the things that he invented that actually won an award was that he would have uh, the banana, a double banana connector between the speaker and the amplifier. And in that, he was able to mount fuse clips on the end of the connector. So every speaker in his system was fused. Hmm. So he would never blow a speaker. But in order to know when that fuse blew, he put a little neon bulb in between. So when all of a sudden there was a voltage difference between the two sides, the bulb would light. And it would light like music, you know, you could see it. So you could tell right away if you blew a fuse. And meanwhile, you had a system that never blew drivers. So that was pretty cool. That's one of the many things that, that A1 Audio did. So when I, uh, most, of the, most of the time, you didn't work for A1 Audio. I worked for the artist. Mm-hmm. 90% of my career or more has been working for the artist. And Al would find you that job and tell the artist we have somebody and he'd work for the artist. So you made more money and you were an independent. And then when you weren't working, your system would go back into the shop and you go back and put in shop time for your system or somebody else's. But that meant that these other guys would have a first engineer working on their system. So it was a wonderful thing all, of, all the way around. You know, Al wanted every engineer to be able to buy his own home. And the way to do that was him for, not to, for him not to pay us, but for the act to pay us. And it worked out great. You know, he was just a great guy. So Sinatra was one of the very few times I was actually a systems engineer for A1 Audio. But it was worth it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let's, let's let's jump back. Um, how did how did you get into this, uh, this this crazy business of audio? I was very lucky. I um, I went to college and graduated as an electrical engineer. I didn't like it. I didn't like the people. The people were boring. Uh, I found the whole concept boring, but it was a great background for me to then maybe get an MBA and move on. Uh, Vietnam War was going on at that point, and I figured this would help me stay out of the infantry. And I was always good at electronics. So I graduated as an engineer. I got a job my first year out, an amazing job, which in itself is an interesting story. But after a year, the company went out of business. And I didn't know what to do. I was living in Manhattan. I had lucked out. Like I said, I was lucky. 
I had an apartment in Manhattan in the Upper East Side for $44 a month for two bedrooms in a nice building, walk up, but a nice building. So I had no overhead. I was able to say, okay, I'm collecting unemployment. I don't want to do engineering, electrical engineering anymore. What am I going to do? And after six months, I had a guy living with me. So my rent was really $22 a month. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we ran into a friend of his who was working for a management company, who was the guy who put the Beatles in Shea Stadium. He's an impresario. He uh, had found a band that he really liked in New York. And this guy was saying, yeah, we're looking for a road manager and we're looking for a sound engineer. And I went, well, I'm an engineer. (laughs) Uh, Bad Ganapi. It turns out the band was a huge success. The entire album was being played in New York. It played at every venue in New York City. It played Carnegie Hall and uh, Lincoln Center and Madison Square Garden and the Academy of Music. And it played every place. Schaefer's uh, in Central Park. It played everywhere. And it was this huge hit, especially on the East Coast. They they headlined an 85,000-person concert at RFK Stadium. They played with Duke Ellington. They played with Deep Purple. They played with... Stevie Wonder. They played with James Brown. They played with the Allman Brothers because they were jazz, R&B, funk, horn band, and percussion band. The name of the band was Mandrill. And there's some amazing videos of back in the 70s. And people to this day say it was one of the the best concerts they ever went to because everybody was dancing throughout the entire show. It was one of those. And they had 22 instruments. And so my first band with me now is a house mixer. My first job, I didn't have to work my way up through the trenches or any of that, was this huge hit. And they had they had congos, bongos, and timbales, or trumpets, sax, and trombone, or flute, or vibes. So they did jazz. I mean, they did everything. So I had to learn quickly, but I had a background. You know, what's a dynamic versus a condenser mic? Oh, it's a charged plate. Ah, okay, sure, I got it. <laughs> so all of those things that you needed to learn quickly... I learned quickly. And meanwhile, the band was doing great. And it was early enough that SIR had just gotten started. So I got to meet the the owners of SIR because they only had one place. And the case company, the only people making rock and roll cases was a guy whose father had a case company. It was Anvil Cases. So I met the owners of Anvil Cases. And Mandrill ordered 40 cases from all these instruments. And they never had an order like that. So I became a big fish in a big pond on my first band. I was really fortunate. And I spent five years with those guys, and I was like part of the band. It was it was family because the me- reason they picked Mandrill for a name is the Mandrill is a baboon that's really family oriented, and yet it has fangs this long. So <laughs> it's like you know whatever you need, it's got. And so that was my start. And so you, you, had, you had never touched an audio console before working for them? No, as a matter of fact, in rehearsals they had a sure vocal master, which was you know little little round knobs, six inputs. And they didn't even have the balanced inputs. They had the quarter-inch instrument inputs. So I had the inline transformers from XLR to quarter-inch. They rehearsed. Their mom had a, a beauty parlor in Bedford-Stuyvesant. So we rehearsed there. And then my very first show, where I actually had a console, was the downstairs at the Village Gate on New Year's Eve, 1970. So that's my anniversary is is that. And well, what was I mean, the mixers back then, were there weren't mixers. Right. Had the Altec green mixers, right. which was, you know, a bass and treble for four inputs or five inputs. And then you had the little Shure M67s 
And then they had an EQ that would go to that. So now you had that with a bass and treble and all of that. So I was around watching these companies and these engineers build the very first consoles. And I, you know, it's like the pilots who flew with the stick when they were, you know, flying. And eventually they're sitting there punching in frequencies for the radios. I was there for all the new stuff that came along. So, and plus with my engineering background, everybody wanted to talk to me about stuff because I'm now, the one thing about Mandrill is they didn't tour like touring. They went out and did spot gigs all year long, but that's what they did. So I used the PA that was local to the promoter wherever we were. I had a list of acceptable PAs, which to people from my era will bring back a lot of memories. You know, Claire was in there, but so was, you know, Kelly DeYoung in Vancouver and all these other companies were in there. And so I got to use every piece of gear that was available, see what microphones were available, and then tell people what I've learned from other sound companies. So I was kind of, you know, cross-pollinating the sound industry in the U.S. at the time. And for me, it was great. It was a great experience. That's awesome. And so um, how, did, uh, how did how did you progress beyond that, or how long did you stay with them? I stayed with them for five years. After five years, I saw that, I mean, at one point, they were headlining over Earth, Wind & Fire, and back and forth. I mean, they were doing really well, but they weren't getting past that point. And I got a call from someone, uh, a friend, a guy who owned the sound company in Philly, who was now in charge of the Doobie Brothers sound system for their new tour when they just got Michael McDonald and they had just gotten Jeff Baxter. And it was like Doobie Dan, you know, and minute by minute came out and they were getting ready to be this major show. And he said, come out West. They're going to have two consoles, one for percussion and drums because they're two drummers and one for the rest of the band. That guy's going to be the lead guy. You'll be the drum guy. And Gray Ingram from the Agora in Cleveland or Cincinnati was going to be the main guy. And so this was the whole thing before cell phones and everything else. So I was, where was I? I was living in the, uh, I, was, I had moved to California just before that. But the band was so popular in the East Coast that I was spending all my time in a, in a hotel in Philadelphia. So anyway, by the time I was able to, to get from Philadelphia to Winterland in San Francisco for the rehearsals, they needed, a, oh, and they said to me, until we get to two boards, API was building them two studio consoles for the road. This was going, you know, state-of-the-art stuff. But they didn't have them yet. They were still mixing on the Spectrasonics or, or one of those. And so they didn't need a second mixer yet. So they said, you'll be the drum tech, drum roadie, which is what we were back then. You'll be the drum roadie until we go on the road, and then we'll pick up the boards on the East Coast. The manager didn't want to pay for the second mixer in rehearsals. So, okay, I'll be the drum roadie. Meanwhile, they start rehearsals. It's taken me a long time to get there, so they hire a drum roadie. I show up. They go, oh, man, we don't know what to do. Stick around, build the system. And then we'll go out and hopefully the manager will pay for you because we're going out to get the second console anyway. So I build the sound system. I get to meet the guys. I'm hanging out with the crew. The music is wonderful, of course. They leave without me because the manager was the board. They weren't getting the boards for weeks. So they left without me. So I had called up Bob Goldstein. He had offered me a job. So MSI. So I take my truck and with my camper in it and I drive back to the East Coast and I park it in the in the in the factory in the warehouse that they have there and I 
I rent an office because I don't want to move to Baltimore. Keep me on the road, Bob. Keep me on the road. And uh, I started working with MSI. And MSI sent me out on Harry Chapin as assistant tech. It sent me out on uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears as the mixer. It sent me out on all sorts of stuff. It's MSI. They were doing great. And, and MSI was also a state-of-the-art company. They were building their own consoles. They had a guy named Dave Smith who was a brilliant engineer. And so everything was in-house at MSI. And as a matter of fact, I'm very proud of this. The three sound companies that I actually worked for in my life were Bobby Goldstein at MSI, Stan Miller at Stanley Sound, and Al Seneschal at A1, among the first three of the audio pioneers for the uh, – the award, the uh, what you call it awards? My mind just forgot the name. Pernelli. The Pernelli oh, Awards. Yeah. The three guys. Or so I worked with the best of the best. It was really great. Uh, anyway, so uh, Bobby uh, had. I was out with the with the, I guess blood, sweat, and tears, and they wanted to make me the road manager. They liked me so much. They said we're going to get. So now I have this major move up in my life and career. And Bobby says, no, we just picked up the Neil Sedaka account. I want you on that account. So he pulled me off of this and put me out with Sedaka. Now, Neil Sedaka, who was a huge hit in the 60s with Dom Doobie Doo, Dom Dom and all that, had died the day the Beatles arrived. Nobody cared about that old rock and roll music. And so he couldn't get arrested in the U.S. This is in the 63, 64. So he moved to England, where he was still popular, and he's still not doing great, but he's doing okay. And then in the 70s, Elton John hears that his hero, a Juilliard graduate, piano-playing singer-songwriter, Elton John, an older version, was having issues. And he said to Neil, Neil, let's put out an album. I have Rocket Records, my own label. And Neil put out an album with Breaking Up Is Hard To Do. And uh, the Carpenters did... Uh, uh, <laughs> my mind is like a Swiss cheese. It's got holes in it. They did the Sedaka with Sedaka's back and all those. So Sedaka was huge. And I got to work with Neil. And through Neil, I got to do my first casino show. I had never done a casino show. I didn't know there was an orchestra. When we're driving, we had done a bunch of uh, radio shows and festivals because it was summertime. And now we were going to do the first casino show that he was first headliner. He had opened for the Carpenters. He did so well that Bill Harris said, Neil, you're going to work with me now from now on. So we're driving from San Francisco Airport with the equipment. And the and the monitor guy, Pete John Sane, who was another legend because his brother was a big one at MSI too. Uh, Pete had done the show with the Carpenters. And he said, and I'm saying, well, this console is fine. You know, I got my 1824 inputs. I'm doing great. He says, what about the strings? I go, what strings? <laughs> What? How do I mic strings? I had tried to mic mandrel at Carnegie Hall, which is, you know, not it's made for a violin to fill the room. Mm -hmm. And here's a band with horns and percussion and drums and monitors. And I foolishly went to a friend of mine from Electric Lady Studios who lent me these U87 microphones to put over the strings. And they were totally useless, <laughs> you know. So I'm sitting saying, oh, my God, my only experience with strings has been a disaster. And he said, well, what about the horns? What horns? What are you talking about? Percussion? What's in the percussion? A harp? How do I make a harp? This is all while we're driving to San Francisco. Okay. So it was Harris Reno was the first one, which is a tiny little room. So I get to the room, and Jim Jaworski, the sound guy, uh, who's been doing shows there forever, you know, and uh, 
it was 14 shows a week. So you close a Sunday night and you work all night. They come in at Sunday afternoon. They do the two shows. They tear out that show. They put in the next show because everybody had their own bandstand. And then you rehearse that show and then you go home. So they're putting in 36-hour days. And I'm putting in a long day, too. And I, and, but they do the same thing. It's the same orchestra. It's the same. So I say to him very nonchalantly, so what do you have for strings? And he tells me, I go, great, perfect. They put the string mics on because it's his crew. Mm-hmm. I did that through all the mics. And that, I, I kind of skated my way through. And, of course, it sounded great because they knew how to mic it and they had the right mics for it. So, but I, what I discovered was instead of one-nighters and sleeping in the truck while we're driving to the next gig and wearing jeans and T-shirts, I now was in a place for a week at a time where I could take an elevator to the job, work with 30 musicians who studied music and could read sight-read music, and work for one star and not a band with the best arrangements and the most wonderful songs. I said, who could love this? Mm. And that changed my life. So Neil Sedaka is one of the biggest acts as far as changes go. And that's it. I stayed in that genre forever. Give me 2,500 people or 1,500 people in a showroom with someone who can make people laugh. I've worked with some of the funniest entertainers ever. You know, Debbie Reynolds just cracks people up all the time. I spent 40 years with her. Charo, Coochie Coochie Charo, who's an amazing flamenco guitarist, makes people laugh. So, And then these acts, even if they didn't, you know, working with with Sadako or um, Bobby Vinton or any of the other acts I work with had comedians to open them up. Mm. I spent my whole career laughing. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, a um, couple things. Um, how much were you influenced as a kid by music, um, given that this wasn't necessarily the career path you had chosen? So I'm curious, you know, I, you know, I, you kind of stumbled into it from an electronic standpoint. Where was that shift where you realized, hey, uh, this is why I'm doing this, and it's not because of the technical. I, I'm, 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 I'm assuming I'm not sure about words in your mouth. I'm assuming that like there's probably a shift at some point where it's, hey, I'm here for the art and passion of what's happening here more so than I am because of the tech that's happening here. Or maybe I'm wrong. Oh no, you're absolutely right. Because first of all, I'm from New York. I was born in the Bronx, and I was raised in White Plains. White Plains is a 30 minute drive to Manhattan, and my mother loved theater, and my father couldn't care less. So she would take me to see Broadway shows. Uh, you know, Holo Dolly or Gypsy or, you know, the first runs of these shows. And so I always loved that part of it. I studied piano from 9 to 15 or 14. So I had music theory. I hated to practice. I could just I could just play stuff by ear, no problem. I could pick up any instrument and get sounds out of it. But I just didn't like the practicing part. But I had a music background. And on top of that, my family loved to dance. I had an uncle... My father's brother was a champion at Roseland in Latin dancing. They would have lessons and all of that. So I danced, you know, you know, whether it was ballroom dancing or not, I danced. And I got to the point where I actually was paid once to be a go-go dancer at a major <laughs> club in Manhattan. Now, it was just a bunch of this stuff, but it didn't matter. I was in college. I used to drive in on the weekends to New York and dance and drive back. It was great for my reputation. <laughs> I was in a fraternity. Next thing you know, we're all dancing on the tables and having a great time. But I've been around music my whole life. I've loved music. And when you're a dancer, you feel the music. Mm-hmm. So that's why Mandrill was such a great band. 
because that's what everybody did. They just danced. The minute the band came out on stage, they were on their feet and they didn't sit down for the whole show. And so it was great for me. I know how to make people dance because I know what makes me want to dance. So, yeah, the, the art of it was really big in the beginning. When, when I heard that this band needed a sound guy, it was like, wow, music, I'm in. Hmm. So, yeah, that was that was it. What what was the point then though? So you were kind of faking it to make it in the beginning. What did you? When was the point where you maybe felt comfortable? Like, okay, I got this. This is I. I know where I am. I know where I need to go. Like, where, where was that? When was that shift? I actually was comfortable almost from the very beginning. You know, learning a few things here and there, but uh, there wasn't that much to learn. Balance lines. That, that was all pretty simple stuff. And especially back then when everything was was simple. But having to find one of the biggest problems putting a sound system together in the beginning was ground loops, buzzes and hums. Mm -hmm. And I had a background in that. So right away, I was able to help the sound. And and remember this, on top of that, we were using local sound companies. So I had experienced people there ready to help me if I needed help. So I was comfortable right from the very first day. No problem at all. that's great um so uh engelbert humperdick and i i can't i cannot say his name right how how do you say his name right humperdink humperdink Humperdink. engelbert humperdink was a famous german literary character or something like that and they just took the name tom jones was a you know because they came out on the same time they had the same manager for all i know the guy came up with the two names for the two of them but uh that's where it came from. But anyway, Engelbert, my wife says I got my gray hair from Engelbert. That's where <laughs> it came from. <laughs> he, he he was the best and he was the worst. I mean, I have to say I feel really fortunate to have worked with him. His voice and his material, the songs and the arrangements were unbelievably wonderful to work with. To be a mixer and to have a full orchestra to mix the textures and the beauty of the songs. And he picked the best songs and he had the best songs. Mm-hmm. And his voice was unbelievable. He was a great looking guy. And he was two people. He was Eng off stage and he was Engelbert on stage. And Engelbert, as you saw in that article, well, actually the article didn't begin to tell you how difficult he was to work with. He was really hard to please. Because even when you had it perfect, in three days, without changing a thing, all of a sudden it wasn't perfect anymore, and it was horrible. And so you had to come in and try something else, and try something else. And the poor monitor guy was, you know, Engelbert had his own language. He used to, while he was singing, he used to do things with his hand to give you sing- signals of what he wanted. More highs, less highs, more reverb, depth, louder, softer, everything. So these monitor guys who are... First of all, in order to get the gig, it's not that you ever got fired from Engelbert. That's your recommendation. It's that you got hired in the first place because only the state-of-the-art, top-line, best engineers got hired because they're the only ones who had a chance of surviving on that show. And he paid well, and so you got the best guys. And they didn't do and, – and still, during the 18 months I was with them, there were 18 different monitor guys. <laughs> you know, one guy lasted weeks. One guy lasted less than a song, which is a whole, 
we were in the round, which of course is horrible because the sound, the monitors shoot straight up to the ceiling and it's a dome. So what does it do? The sound bounces straight down and, and just mixes everything up. So we'd be in the round and he'd be making signs all over the place. And we had one of the best engineers in the business. And Engelbert and a friend of ours was working for Sure Mics. He was an engineer. He was the first guy out there with Melissa Manchester, all these other acts. And he was working with Sure and helping him develop new microphones. And so he came to us with a new capsule, an SM87 capsule. It was 85. The 87 wasn't out yet. The 87 capsule for us to try. Maybe we could make him happy with that. I mean, it was, working with Engelbert was nonstop. What can we do to improve it? What can we do to make it better? And it got better. And it got unbelievable. But it still wasn't enough many, many times. But anyway, so he's standing next to the monitor guy while the show is going on. And Engelbert is unhappy. And he sees the guy there. And he goes and he points to him. I can't see your hand. He points to him and says, you, you didn't say it. You, you there to the monitor position. And you out. <laughs> So the monitor guy gets off and the other guy gets on. What's he going to do? You know, so he stands there and before the song is over, he goes, okay, you off, you back on again. So (laughs) I I count him as one of the 18 that got fired. (laughs) And so, uh, um, and Ken, so Ken Newman had that gig before you. Is that correct? Ken Newman had Engelbert before me. And then he came on to Engelbert to to work on the monitors. Hmm. And Ken is a brilliant engineer. So he was able to keep them happy for a relatively long amount of time. And what happens is you either get burnt out and you say, I can't take this anymore and I'm out of here, or you get fired. Sooner or later, you're gone for whatever reason. Uh, I started to bring up, um, what was I? I was going to tell a story about uh, Engelbert. But anyway, uh, these guys would just come in and, and, and the road manager used to have one of them sitting in a hotel waiting you know, <laughs> on deck <laughs> to do it. So, but at the same time, mixing that show, well, mixing the show was difficult because the, the level coming off the stage was so loud that many times all I could do was roll the high end off his microphone, roll the low end off his microphone and just put some sibilance in there and try to get some sibilance on some of the strings. And I couldn't mix the show because the stage volume was so loud that all I could do was augment it. Mm. So sometimes, but every once in a while, we were in a big enough place that I could really get into the meat of the mix. And it was just wonderful. And so this is around, around 1985, correct? Yeah. Right yeah. Around 85, 84. What, uh, what, what, what console were you on at the time? Uh, I have a lousy memory, but probably a PM2000. PM2000. Around that era. Now, here's another thing that happened. Like I said, it was constantly looking to improve. In-ear monitors were not really around yet. And the guy who invented in-ear monitors for Stevie Wonder, Stephen Ambrose. And now you may hear stories about all these other people, but Stephen Ambrose was the guy who started it. And he got, he, he found the ear molds, but he needed the electronics, the transmitters and receivers to go with it. And he convinced Crystal Taylor Sound to come up with that. And the two of them together created the in-ear monitor system. And so we hired him for Engelbert. And of course, Engelbert doesn't, you know, what do you do? First of all, it's a new, they didn't want to pay for a second console. So now you have to set up an in-ear mix and you have to be ready for him to pull them out and go to the speaker mix. 
Mm-hmm. We ended up with a studio engineer and a monitor engineer standing next to each other, waiting for whichever one was going to be on it. And we got Engelbert on uh, in ears. And what was interesting was once again, A1 Audio being what they are, uh, they decided that the best. Uh, and by the way, Marty Garcia hadn't really come out with his stuff yet, so he couldn't buy it. You had to make it. And so A1 Audio created a wireless radio station for Engelbert. And instead of a tenth of a watt, milliwatt, I mean, you know, 10 milliwatts or 50 milliwatts, it was a 10-watt radio station. Wow. We were broadcasting all over Vegas for the <laughs> show. But in order to keep it private, we realized that in Japan, FM radio starts at 66 or something, as opposed to 88, where it starts for us. So we went to Japan and bought little FM receivers Tuned the whole system between 66 and 88 somewhere. Oh, wow. And we had an, a wireless monitor system for Engelbert, which worked with no dropouts, with the shitty antennas and everything else that we had. Uh, but, of course, and after just a couple of minutes, he would pull it out, and we go back to the live. But we got, I got to know Stephen Ambrose. I got to understand and work with the in-air wireless monitor systems back then. And I have pictures of that original transmitter. That should be in the Smithsonian. <laughs> The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because this is the very beginning of all of this. Stevie Wonder was about 74, 75, 76. And, and that was just, you know, little ear things. And then the ear molds came in somewhere around 81, 82, 83, 84. And we, we were doing this in 84. So, like I said, I'm the guy who started by with the flying by stick and working my way through technology as it all came along. I feel very fortunate to have been part of this. Who who were some of the um, who were some of the biggest mentors you had um, al- al- along that journey? Well, with Mandrill, I was on my own, other than you know meeting people left and right. And then uh, when I went with Maryland Sound, Dave Smith, who was building all the electronics, and I became very good friends. And he, you know, being one of the very few engineers in the business with an actual engineering degree, he could talk to me about things that he couldn't talk to with other engineers. So I was in the, in the shop a lot and watching a lot of what was going on. So Dave was pretty good. He wasn't really a mentor, but he was an informative friend. Uh, and Bobby Goldstein was always great uh, to work with. Uh, Stan Miller also, but Al Seneschal was probably my biggest mentor because he took it as his job to make sure I had a great career. He liked what I did. He liked my personality. We became friends. He knew he could count on me, that I could do the job with these. He, A1 Audio had the most difficult artists in the business. Uh, everyone who you know was firing everybody else would come to A1, and because of the quality of the equipment and the quality of the engineers and the personal service that they got, they would stay with A1. So I loved it. Al got me a lot of work. As a matter of fact, uh, most of my work came from Al. I, I started with A1 officially in 79. Hmm. And he sold the company in, I don't know, 2000-something. So there was a lot of years of uh, Al helping me out. So he is my biggest mentor and a great friend. All right, so Ken Newman is, is working with a friend of mine, and they're putting the sound system in the House of Blues Sunset Strip and uh, designing it from scratch. And this is a stage uh, that has a bar in the back that swings open 
And now the people in the upstairs bar can see the show or swings close. And now there's a wall in front of the stage. And so there's all these areas that have to be done. Uh, State-of-the-art equipment going in. And I end up taking over from Kenny and doing the install. So that was fun because the opening night act, these things always run late. So we never even had a, a real sound check. The opening, we didn't have a sound check. The opening act was Aerosmith. And they're going to come out and blast out, and we have no idea if the system's going to blow up or it's going to work. But it ended up winning Nightclub of the Year, and it worked great. But uh, that's another one of the things I'm really proud of having done, House of Blues Sunset Strip, which is now a hole in the ground. It's gone. <laughs> that's awesome. Where did you go after uh, Engelbert? Oh, it was just a series of acts that came through. It was... Uh, Oh, Shirley MacLaine. It was Tommy Toon, which got me into the theater world. I've, I've got a Broadway design credit, and I did a bunch of theatrical stuff. Uh, installs through A1 Audio, where I actually did work for A1 Audio, or myself and hired A1 Audio. Uh, Tony Orlando and Don, uh, uh, Donna Summer, uh, Bette Midler and Cher. That was actually Steno. Uh, Jesus, there's so many. And Margaret. Um, well, of course, Sinatra, Julio. There's just another twenty that my mind isn't coming up anymore. But I just, I just kept working. I mean, I was with Engelbert for eighteen months. Then I was with Shirley for a year. Then I was with Tommy Toon for a year and a half. And then I did a show, uh, a Las Vegas production show, called Splash, and it was a water show. And it had a tank with mermaids in it, and it had a, a typical Vegas show. You'd have a dance number with themes, and then you have specialty acts. You'd have a juggler, or you'd have a, a Michael Jackson lookalike. And it was this show that was so popular that it was the number one show that the Japanese would come. And this was in the 90s when they owned everything. So one of the uh, one of them, a man who had his own golf course, which meant he was a you know, multi-multi-millionaire, mm -hmm. decided to bring that show to, to Japan, outside of Osaka. And A1 Audio had done... A1 Audio was in charge of almost every Vegas showroom because of what they did. And so th at the Riviera Hotel, that was their sound system. So they got the call to, to design and help design the sound system for Japan. And I get this call from Al says, I need you to go to Japan to put the show in. You'll be there for two weeks. And this show had lasers and it had uh, time code and it had uh, pyrotechnics. It was a really big production show. It won the Las Vegas production show of the year like nine times. So we get to Japan, and this show is 90 minutes outside of Osaka, where the hot springs are. That's where you build a golf course is where there's the hot springs. You don't just build a golf course. you got to have both together. So we're 90 minutes outside, and we're surrounded by rice paddies and a little two-story town that the train stopped in. And so the only people that they could get to work on the show were people, local people, who had no experience whatsoever. The sound guy's requirements, his, his qualifications, were that he was a ham radio operator. That was his qualification for mixing a musical show. That's <laughs> as good as it got. So the pyro guy had no idea. So we all get to, to Japan, the whole American crew. The concept was there was an English show caller, an American crew, to teach the Japanese crew things coming in and out, the whole deal. They were going to learn upstage, downstage, in and out. They were going to learn the American words. 
And then the only American running the show was the show caller, who sat in the audience instead of the stage manager, you know, and then the dancers. So we get there, and there's a big meet and greet, and everybody starts to realize that nobody knows what's going on. You can, the pyro guy says, there's no way in hell I'm giving him explosives. The laser guy says, it's going to cost you $100,000 in less than a week. He's going to burn out your laser. So the Japanese realize they better hire every one of these Americans to run the show. So my two weeks turned into nine months. Wow. Living in Japan, working there on a great show, and having an amazing experience. So that was Al, who gave me that gig, and it was wonderful. So for a better part of your career, were you were you mixing or were you system teching, or was it a good balance of both? I, I've been, I, most of my career, I worked for the house guy. I mean, I worked for the artist, and I've been a house mixer. I would say, out of a thousand shows, or let's say a hundred percent. 5% was, not even 5%, 2% was at a monitor guy. Maybe 20% was a monitor and a house guy together. And the rest was front of house. And system tech, 5%, maybe, if that. I mean, I've been a front of house guy for my whole career. And I've loved it. I don't want to do monitors. That's too close to the insanity on stage. I know it's great when you get to be friends with the band but you also get to work with the star and the star is a star, you know, there's something that makes them unique and it's usually not being soft and fluffy. It's being rough. Now, on the other hand, because of the Vegas acts I've worked with people like Debbie Reynolds and Jim neighbors and Florence Henderson and, and Charo, they become friends. They come to a wedding. We go to weddings and, and have dinners together. And, you know, and I've spent 30 and 40 years with these acts. Bernadette Peters, an amazing, wonderful woman, sweetheart. And at the other end, you know, the other ones who are really tough to work for, who I don't end up with for that long. 30 or 40 years with the good ones, a year or two years with the not so good ones. A common point in history for a lot of engineers um, that have been around for your time was the transition into digital. What, um, what was that experience like for you? That's a good one. I love that. Uh, when digital first came out, you know, I want to get my hands on everything. I want to mix on everything. I want to get to use everything. And I found digital fascinating. You know, the whole concept of losing knobs was not great. On the other hand, the concept of memory was amazing to me. And especially since I'm using a different console every place I go. So the Yamaha boards became the de facto standard because of all the boards I've ever worked. And we're not talking about the quality of the sound because I know early Yamaha boards, people used to go, they're garbage. Give me an English board, you know. But the ergonomics of the Japanese boards, what hand goes where, and how easy it is to figure it out, and how easy it is to set up a show, is as good as any board has ever been. So that's one of the reasons that they became so popular. So the PM1000, then the PM, well, that was the analog. Uh, the, the, the 1D. Yeah, but when we got to the, the Pro, the, the Pro, uh, Pro the, o, the, well, it was the O1V and then the Pro the Mix. Yeah. and all those things. Uh, I didn't get too much of a chance to use those. They were, became mostly sideboards. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the, the 22 okay. string mics. Uh, you just put them on the side and submix the strings in. So I got to work with them, but I didn't get them as a major houseboard. Uh, but eventually I did. I never felt uncomfortable on them. I totally got what they did. I'm doing one show with this PA, with that room, with that console. I have no idea how the board sounds. I'm going to another place with a different board and different mics and different stage space. So I could never really say 
this is it. I couldn't fine tune anything. I could just get in, do the show and get out. But I started being able to bring in memory. And all of a sudden, these acts that were difficult to set up from scratch were not as difficult anymore. Because I would have that guitar sound, right? I would have the vocal effects sounds. I could have all of that. And I didn't really, I mean, there's we had our outboard gear, you know, that we had those settings on those too. Mm-hmm. But slowly but surely, I've been eliminating all the outboard gear because the boards are getting better and better. And I just absolutely love digital. I mean, I remember hearing my contemporaries going, I'm sticking analog. I don't <laughs> want that digital crap. And slowly but surely, of course, they've had to come along. There's only maybe one or two left. And that's because the act insists on having an analog board. But they you know, they were moved in kicking and screaming and I was there racing ahead of the pack. Get me in there. Put me in, coach. I want that board. And I'm still like that. And, and I'm still PA du jour. I'm still this showroom has this board and that ship if I'm on doing a ship. And I get to use every board there is. And I love it. And there's a common denominator that makes digital digital. And then there are the shortcuts that are unique to each board. So you still have to learn stuff, but conceptually, they're all the same. That's great. What uh, what's been your um, what's been the core thing that's driven you through all these years? I love doing shows. I love traveling. I love being in another city and discovering that city. I love going international. I haven't had the really bad gigs internationally where you're dragging stuff through the mud and there's no load in. Or, uh, you know, there's guys with guns outside waiting to, you know, protect you from stuff. I haven't had those gigs. But the, when I travel internationally, well, I'm getting paid to go. How <laughs> wonderful is that? I All I travel with is a set of headphones, a Sharpie, and a flashlight. That's all I need. You know, I have a, I have my own piano mics that I use if I'm doing an acoustic piano to make my, what I, and then they're wonderful. And I'm one of the only people who carries them. So I have my own thing to make, you know, to make me unique. But it, traveling is great. I don't mind planes. I'm not big. I'm 5'6". So sitting in an airline seat is not a chore. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not six foot three trying to figure out where to get my legs. Because you don't always fly business class. I mostly fly coach. It's only a few acts that will take me business. Because I don't do the big acts. If I was doing acts that were playing 40,000 people or 20,000 people, they make enough money to fly me business. But I'm playing showrooms, 2,500, 1,500 people. So I don't really travel uh, business class. So anyway, I fit in the airplane. I don't mind it. It's all fun for me. It's exciting. I eat in restaurants all the time anyway. I never wanted to cook. That apartment in Manhattan was a fifth floor walk-up. So I wasn't carrying food up, but I wasn't carrying trash down. <laughs> As New York, you eat in restaurants. So my whole life has been restaurants. I'm very happy with that. That's you great. Know, I don't. I, you know, my, when my wife and I got together, her kids were four and six, so there was a lot of you know. Oh, I want to be back for the kids, but I was on the road. That was my life. And now the kids, I have grandkids, so it's really cool that I've got a family that I didn't lose. I didn't get divorced because I was on the road all the time. I mean, the acts I'm with, those acts. Those, the other thing about those MOR acts, the, the Vegas acts, is that they work year round but they don't work solid. They don't go on tour for two years like the, the rock acts do. You know, I, I have a life because they have a life. Mm-hmm. They'll, you know, they'll go out for four weeks and they'll come home for a week or two. That's not bad. You know, that's, that's livable. So that was the other reason that I really loved working these uh, 
show, the headline entertainers is what they're called. I love working with those guys. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, I imagine a lot of that came from, and I'm noticing obviously a trend with the A1 audio, right? Just about anybody who was kind of in that camp, or a lot of people were in that camp, you know, you know, like Ken and stuff. I mean, you know, Ken's still doing Barry Manilow and, and others. It's, it's that adult contemporary Vegas style, style vibe is definitely what, you know, what, what A1 bred. I mean, I'm mixing, instead of mixing three guitars, keyboards, and maybe a saxophone with drums, I'm mixing, well, not, not anymore. Times have changed. And the acts that I work with are gone. So I was there during the heyday of, you know, 14 shows a, a week. But that was a 32-piece band, a 32-piece orchestra. All those textures. Think of an artist who has a box of Crayolas with eight colors in it. And think of the one who has the box with 64 colors in it. That was me. I can have textures and tones. And it was, you know, it was wonderful. And plus the arrangements. You know, to listen to a beautiful string section playing, it's just great. So I love it. I'm working with this Japanese guy. His name is Yoshiki. He's a world-famous guy that nobody ever heard of. He had a band called X-Japan. He was the speed metal drummer. It was, Kiss was his inspiration. And the band played the Tokyo Dome, which is 55,000 people, sold it out 18 times. He is huge in Asia. And he started out as a classical pianist. So he's a classical pianist, and he's a heavy metal rock drummer, which in one person is amazing. And the band did his thing, and it was a peak. And it, So he decided to take his classical music, the songs that he wrote. He hired George Martin to produce the album. It went to number one in 13 countries in the first day. And... He writes the most beautiful music. He wrote the theme for the Golden Globes. He wrote uh, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And so I get to go on the road and mix his stuff. And he decided, and first we went out on his promotional tour, and I got to go to Taiwan and Moscow and all these wonderful cities uh, on a promotional tour. And he had six string players, six string girls, beautiful girls, because he's just a rock god, you know. Mm -hmm. And they played, and I kept saying, oh, this music is unbelievable. I'd love to have an orchestra. And sure enough, he says, we're going to go to Carnegie Hall and we're going to, and he does live streaming all the time. He's got his own channel on TV. He's got his own credit cards. He's got his own cellular company. I mean, the guy is huge. So in order to do the, the uh, Carnegie Hall show, he needed a bunch of concerts to get it together. So we did Hong Kong, we did all these other places and then we did Carnegie Hall. So I got to mix again because it's rare now for me to get an orchestra, but this is only a year and two years ago. Mm -hmm. got to mix this wonderful music so and his name is Yoshiki and the band is X Japan and the, uh, the YouTube videos of X Japan concerts if you think Kiss is his, his idol you can think what 55,000 <laughs> 55, people are going to see when he has the money you know his drum riser goes out to second base and goes up and spins around I mean it's just a real production and then he sits and he plays and he conducts and he's just the softest guy and he composes and he arranges he does all that stuff he's brilliant and he's a nice guy on top of that but he's still the sinatra you know you talk to him you say hello but you don't sit and talk about the wife and kids <laughs> <laughs> so i want to jump back um you know when you started you know it's obviously uh ground stacking was probably all there was in terms of speakers what was yeah. um <laughs> What was the first time you had to fly speakers or the idea of flying speakers? What, what was that experience? 
Well, back then, you took your speakers and you put them into a tray, you know, a platform, and you flew the platform. You still didn't fly the speakers. You flew the platform and you strapped the speakers into the platform. So, but that, in order to do that, you had to be in, a, in an arena because you really didn't need to fly the speakers in a theater. So I really wasn't doing arena gigs. I've done some. I've done up to 100,000 people. But in general, they've all been ground stacked. That's then when cool. I started with A1 and we started doing Sinatra and stuff, that's when we were flying flying PAs. And some showrooms you would fly them, but in general, especially the VIP stack, that was so big, you would only fly them if you needed to. Yeah. It was ground support. And then, So when you came into MSI, was it was they had the claws at the time? or um... Claws. Now, the claws had uh, four 15s or four, four 15s, right? Something like that, yeah. He, well, he had he had half a claw and he had the full claw, mm -hmm. but that was a uh, oh I forgot the name of the box Carlson Carlson cabinets, the guy who invented a horn that was the shape of a rabbit's ear. He decided that, that was such a perfect way to amplify that he took that and he folded it down, and that's where the claws came from for for bass. Yeah, and so yeah. That, that was it. There was the claw, and then he had bought Northwest Sound because he wanted to pick up uh, the James Taylor and the and the Eagles and those acts. So, he, and that's where he got the Northwest cabinets, NW15s and the horn. Yep, NW2s. Yep, and broke them all. So that was that era, and then he had his own consoles, custom made. You know, you get a big, uh, you build a frame and build the electronics and put it together and make it sound right. It was really good stuff. And so. Through the years, uh, being the electronics background you had, did you ever get involved in any of that building of EQs and compressors and consoles and stuff, or did you just stay, stay mixing? To be honest, I did not graduate near the top of my class. <laughs> I found it uh, I found it very – first of all, I made the mistake – I'm a night guy. My whole life I've been a night guy. So when the engineering classes were at 8.30 in the morning or at 6.30 at night, I took the night classes not realizing that I was sealing my own fate because I was in school in Bridgeport, Connecticut, University of Bridgeport. And in Bridgeport, especially during the Vietnam War, you had Sikorsky helicopter. Think about the war, right? All helicopters. You had AFCO uh, Lycoming jet engines. You had Timken ball bearings, really big military supply for the war. So there were loads of technicians working there who wanted an engineering degree. So they went to the night classes. Those guys who had families, who had experience, learned the stuff like I did in audio. They just picked it up like that. And me, I'm struggling. What are you talking about, a power source, a voltage source? What do you mean? Oh, a battery. Oh, that, you know, you have to find out what they're talking about. I fell behind day, well, uh, day three, I fell behind. And I caught up. I mean, I graduated, but I did not graduate enough to go ahead and start designing circuits. I could read a schematic. I could repair some stuff, but I wasn't designing anything. Uh, it just became a great background for me. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, had you not gone there, that you might not have gotten actually in this industry. You know, uh, even though that's not the uh, path you you know yeah. thought to go. So I couldn't have said to that guy, "I'm an engineer." <laughs> that got me the job. That's awesome. Along the way, you know, um, I think we often learn from our mistakes. What were some? Oh. <laughs> what were some? What were some mistakes that you learned from? 
You know, that's not a question I really want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some. There are some. Uh, a couple of times in my life, I assumed it was okay. And it came back to bite me. You know, a, a mic pack on somebody got disconnected because I, I didn't make sure the tape holding the connector in was tight. So in the middle of the show, I had to run from front of house, backstage, put the mic connector back in and run back out while she had the band vamp. That was very embarrassing. Mm. Stuff like that. I never got high for a show. I got a high once before a show and, you know, smoking pot. Uh, it was really early in my career. And by the time I was getting behind the board, I went, this is not good. So that was it. I learned my lesson. I didn't drink. So that was a mistake, but I survived that one too. Uh, with Engelbert, I assumed that after a year and a half, he trusted me to know what I'm talking about. And Engelbert, one of his problems was he was losing his high-end hearing. Because those monitors were so loud, and then there was feedback all the time because he was telling his guys to give me more, and the only way he knew that he couldn't get any more was when it would feed back. So, you know, his hearing was, especially during the show, it would just get worse and worse and worse. So the good part of that is Engelbert never came out to front of house. During sound check or rehearsal, he was always on stage. I had total freedom to do what I needed to do. But one time he came out and he sat in, like, row 10, and he said to me, it sounded dull, which I knew it didn't. But I knew it sounded dull. Okay, I let that pass. Uh, but time goes on, time goes on. Then you, you, know, you get called backstage after the show, and he's ranting and all of that. you got to remember, it's a great show. I love this show. He, he would sometimes interject his sound problems to the audience. I'm having a problem here. You're not <laughs> doing a good, you know, he would do that. But generally, it was a great show. But one time he was having a discussion and he said to me, it wasn't, you know, something about his hearing, it wasn't right, it wasn't bright. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going through hell trying to keep this guy happy. What's supposed to be for me, a walk in the, in the afternoon, make sure the system works, do the show and leave, has turned into every day trying a different setup, moving the monitors, trying something else. It was work all the time and difficult. I finally said to myself, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm going to tell him the truth. And hopefully he's going to respect it and accept it. And I said, well, Eng, I, didn't, I thought it was a little bright. And I saw his eyes turn cold. And I said, I'm out of here one <laughs> of these days. And sure enough, during the next massacre, because he would have massacres where you're all gone and you're all gone. He fired the dancers, he fired the musical director, and he fired A1 Audio. And I, and I ended up going. Even though I worked for him, that was it. And I went, okay. You can't trust them to be your friends, especially someone like him. You know, Charo and Debbie Reynolds, those others, they were different. But that was a mistake. Or it wasn't. You know, I went on with Shirley McLean, so that was uh, really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, then let's uh, the stories you do want to tell. Then, what, what's uh, uh, what? What are some of the more memorable, uh, most memorable experiences looking back on your uh, you know amazing career? Oh wow! Well, Mandrill was a big one for me because I experienced so many things for the first time. I mean, because they were had a flute and vibes. Uh, well, the background is they came, the three brothers came from Panama. 
So they had that Lipso feel. And then they moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant, so they had the funk. Uh, the brothers also played horns, including flute. They got a keyboard player who was a jazz guy who played the vibes, the Fender Rose, the clavinet, and uh, V3 organ. Back in the day when you had to move a B3 around. And I was crew. You know, I wasn't hands-off. So the band played with everybody. We did a, a jazz festival in Morocco. Early in my career, it was like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. And they were all, the, the shows were out in the bull ring. And the last day, it started a pouring raining, so they moved the, at Mandrill Headline, so we moved into the theater. But I was doing the shows in Morocco, and the band was buying all these great outfits that they ended up wearing on stage, and that was a great one. And then the RFK Stadium Festival, which had the Funkadelics and all these other acts, with 85,000 people. They, they only seated 60,000 people, but they had another 25,000 on the infield because they couldn't keep them out and the promoter wanted to keep making money. And that's the biggest crowd I had ever been in. It was unbelievable. So that was a big one. And I remember trying to get out from backstage through, through the throngs of people. I've become really good at getting through crowds. I mean, that's one of my talents is how to get from point A to point B swivel around, you know, getting through. Because they're all, they don't want to move. And I'm just dark. They can't see me. The lights are back there. But I did. I got out to front of house. And uh, I did that show. That was a great, I mean, there were so many great shows. Uh, Bernadette Peters, Under the uh, Arch in St. Louis for July 4th for 100,000 people with an orchestra. That was wonderful. The day before, there was a, a mini tornado that came through and wiped out the sound half the sound system wow. they had to build it up again. I was in my hotel watching it. I got pictures of stuff flying around. I mean, I just can't think of this. There's so many wonderful shows. Deb, someone like Debbie Reynolds, who grew up in the business as a child. She was 16 when she got her movie career going. Loved being around talent. She loved talent. Her, she lived her life for talent. And we would be on the road and we would be doing these shows and you're in a casino and after the showroom, you go in the dressing room is you go, we would go into the dressing room, all of us, maybe 10, 11, 12 of us. She'd order whatever you want. You want drink cocktails, you want meals, go champagne would come in. And we would sit there until six in the morning, just visiting, hearing stories, getting to know each other, becoming a family. So, you know, that family feel, which is really rare on the road. I had a lot of that, you know, like I said, I'm really lucky to have yeah. experienced all of these things. So talk about you. You had mentioned you, you won an award for a, a, a Broadway design. Is that correct? No, I or uh, I, Tommy Toon took his show, which was a, a song and dance act. Tommy Toon has got more Tony Awards than anybody in history. He's got 11 Tony Awards and he's got them in six categories. Director, producer, dancer, actor, singer, all of that stuff. I mean, he's an amazing talent and he's six foot six. And yet he started out as a chorus boy when they're all like five, nine, five, ten. So but he was so talented and he put out this show and he took it to Broadway. And so I got to do my show on Broadway, which put me in as a sound designer in the Broadway thing. I did win an award for uh, there's an arranger who I met with Neil Sedaka, who's should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He did unbelievable amounts of shows and arrangers for Madonna and Whitney Houston and Barbara Streisand and Barry Manilow. He did. He does. Everybody is an arranger. His name is Artie Butler. 
And he wrote, a, and he's a very funny guy. He's like a Brooklyn Borscht Belt comedian. So in between shows and after shows, sitting in the coffee shop at the Riviera Hotel for hours and hours and hours, once again, you get to know somebody really well. So Artie did a, a show called The Last Supper, and it was all about people going to a fat farm and they're having their last supper. And it was a very funny one-man show, and I won a Dramalogue Award for that. So I got to give a speech, and being the, the person that I am, I got up for the, you know, the guys behind the, the mixing board, mixing the awards, and they go out event every foot this award. <laughs> he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> so... This is an interesting yeah, question. Uh, yeah, I thought about when I was talking to uh, David Morgan, and um, if if you could rem- be remembered for one thing, you know, call it legacy, call it whatever. Uh, what would you what would you want to be known for in your career? Well, first of all, my the ability to mix a full orchestra, which is nobody's going to have that anymore. Who gets to mix an orchestra? Who gets to work with all of those textures and make something that can be so finessed? I feel really lucky to be one of the few who can do that and do it well. So that was it. And being, you know, in the beginning of the business, when I was the guy cross pollinating, Oh, did you ever see the, uh, the snake system on a, on a motorized reel with a foot pedal, variable speed foot pedals. So you can pull your snake up and roll it up with one guy. I mean, Marilyn sound did that. Mm-hmm. And everybody looked at me like I was nuts. What are you crazy? He said, no, he just said that you hold a wet rag and he just uh, clean your, clean it. And you're done. I mean, there's so many wonderful things like that. Aphex. Do you remember Aphex? Mm-hmm. The guy who created Aphex was in New York. And it added high end to whatever, presence to whatever you were doing. They were using it on albums. Paul McCartney used it. But you couldn't buy it. You could only lease it. And you, you, you paid for how much time you had. Uh, I met the guy, Kurt Knoppel, and he and I hit it off because I'm a New York engineer, Sam Mandrill. And he gave me one to use and to travel with. So I had one on Neil Sedakin. I'd be in a theater in Iran where they had this two-way horn system. And all of a sudden, I'm getting sibilance coming out of his PA that didn't have it before. So I've kind of been around for a lot of that. I was lucky enough when Mandrill was recording, they recorded at Electric Lady. They were one of the first bands to go into Jimi Hendrix's studio. Jimi Hendrix never finished an album at Electric Lady. They were building it while he was making his last album. Then he went to England and died. But the guy who built it for Jimi Hendrix became the maintenance engineer in the back. And while the band was recording, I had nothing to do. I sit and watch, but it gets really boring. I always found I get bored easily if there's nothing going on. And, you know, those creative decisions weren't mine, so I just was bored. So I would hang out in the shop in the back. And I got to be really good friends with the two guys there who built Electric Lady. We're talking about a console from a solid sheet of aluminum that had holes punched in it engraved and building the, the cards and building the whole thing. These were brilliant, brilliant guys. And they decided, they got a call from Abe Jacobs, a famous theater studio designer, a Broadway designer, to do to build a board for Lemmings, the National Lampoon show that had Chevy Chase and John Belushi way before anything else. And it was going to play at the Village Gate. And they decided to build this tiny board that I helped build. And... That's another story. That board also should be really famous because one of those two guys, Ted, actually designed, along with George Massenberg at the same time, totally independent of each other, parametric EQ. Hmm. So this little tiny board that they built, 
that I could that I ended up buying for having Mandrill buy was so far ahead of the game. It was a full studio quiet recording board that folded up into a box maybe two and a half feet by a foot and a half by a foot. Two halves that opened up and became uh, 24 inputs. Eight inputs in a master section and 16 inputs with an umbilical that joined them together. I mean, I was having a great time with that stuff. And I was also working on state-of-the-art, groundbreaking equipment. So I've had a great time. And what I want to have, I don't know, you know, I'm being remembered for being a, a, a groundbreaker in many ways. Taking that Apex and bringing it all over the country to sound, sound systems that never had them. All they had them was in the studio. You know, that ROR, Ron and Rothstein, the two, Shimon Ron and Ted Rothstein, two amazing designers. And uh, taking that board around and saving my ass on shows. Mandrill did a show in St. St. Thomas and, and uh, St. Croix, and the soundboard never made it from the U.S. We were using the Allman Brothers PA that they gave to their roadies when they became really big. So we had their roadies with us, and the soundboard didn't make it. And I had this little tiny board that we were using as a keyboard mixer. It ran the show. It did a beautiful job. So that was kind of cool. I didn't send you the picture of that, but that's – I will – well, so I, I've I've talked more about the ROR board. I've seen some pictures of that recently. Um, what what exactly was that board? What, what was it made of? Um, you know, ch channel wise and and stuff. Well, it was really interesting. It had it was a solid panel, uh, two panel, two board, two panels, uh, the first half and the second half, and it was left, right, Q one and Q two. They called it Q because they were studio guys instead of aux. Mm -hmm. So it was a left, right, Q one and Q two, and then one through eight. And then the others were 9 through 24. And what they put on the top of every input was a 1 through 8 rotary switch. So you could reroute that input into 1 through 8. So you could take input 1 and route all the drums into input 1 and have a subgroup hmm. that nobody had before. And you could put the kick on there and adjust the kick. with, uh, And it was post-EQ. So you could do the EQ for the kick and the, and the, and the level and then route the rest of the drums in there or the background vocals and stuff like that. So that was something that was really unique. It had uh, low and high EQ uh, fixed on each one and a pre-post switch on the auxes, which was also revolutionary. And then on the outputs, it had a high, it was four outputs and it had a high and a low notch filter that was came to a little patch bay in the back of the board. So you could cascade them together. You could put four frequencies on Q1 and four frequencies on Q2 if you wanted to. I mean, the board was really made. And then I had them, I insisted on, because Mandrill bought it, and then putting a clear comms station in there that would go into the headphones. So if I put the headphones on and I hit, I could listen to you know somebody talking or I could listen to the Q. So, I mean, it was just a really this little board. And then on top of that, because they were studio guys, they put an XLR out on every input, a direct out on every input. Mm -hmm. So you could do a 24-track recording with this little board. And the story is, is that when they first plugged it in, okay, we built it, we designed it. Now they turned it in. They thought that it was broken because there was no nothing. It was totally quiet. <laughs> there was no hiss. There was nothing. And then they picked up the mic to talk into it, and it blasted them out, and they knew they had a winner. 
at that point. That's funny. That's Mandrill still has. I just saw that board about a month and a half ago. Really? The, I, the, the pictures I have are more recent. Uh, Mandrill still has it because they're still a band. They're, after fifty years, they they got back together and uh, did another album that's just coming out. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I need to look more into that console. I, I, I've seen some more stuff about it recently. Oh, I'll send you stuff. I even have the original brochure for it. Uh, Bearsville recording had one. Todd Rundgren took one on the road. Of course, it did the show Lemmings. They only built four of them or five of them, but they were groundbreaking. So, what were what were some of your uh, favorite, you know, analog consoles back in the day? Some, you know, any ones that stood out, out outside of the standards, the you know, the Yamaha PM two thousands and stuff like. What, what were some of the more unique consoles you get to work on that were fun or different? Well, I knew the Midas boards were great boards. So whenever I could get a hold of a Midas board, I would really do that. Remember, analog, you don't have to know anything. You know, there's an input, there's auxes, there's EQ, and then your outboard gear is everything. So uh, you have the same outboard gear, you know, drummer gates, and, you know, you just have all that stuff that you wanted. And, and so then you just have a board. And if it had good meters and it had good ergonomics and sounded good, which, of course, all the Midas boards did, that would be great. So, you know, stuff like that. Those are my favorites. And, you know, it had the, the cachet. You know, this is a Midas board. You know, you know, you know you're mixing yeah. on the best sound that you're going to get. It's funny. The English, they drive on the wrong side of the road. They do all of this stuff. They don't care about the rest of the world. The original, now whose board was it? I can't remember whose board it was. They put a Trident, I think, live board. They put input one on the right side of the inputs, <laughs> and they numbered them from right to left. And I remember saying, the English are really different <laughs> than you and me when I saw that board. I would love to see a picture of that board. Now, the important thing was, would you still do kick on the first channel on the right side of the board, or would you do oh, it on the left? Kick was always the first. Well, you'd think that you'd put vocals over there. Kick was always, it was always kicks, or, or maybe possibly bass first, but it was always drums, bass, or bass drums. So right, they would that'd, have, be, that'd be at the end of your stake, right? They would be, wouldn't be at the beginning of your stake if you're going to have it on your left. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be number one. Right. So it would be, at the, so it would be where input one was. The snakes, I don't remember how they were, how they, they, those were probably still one through. <laughs> went through but when i saw that first console and the input one was all around the right i just went all right the english are the english you know love <laughs> them love them <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> okay back in the day you know la had the motion picture lots of love with the place and slowly but surely they would close or whatever but columbia back in the 70s realized that the lot was costing a lot of money to keep going so they rented space on the warner brothers lot and did as much as they could remotely, live, out and on location. So the Columbia lot, a full motion picture lot with 11, 12 sound stages and everything that goes with it, was sitting empty. And uh, a, one group of people rented the biggest sound stage and turned it into a tennis club. They had two tennis courts on the sound stage. And it sat like that. And then two guys who worked for Tiger Bray Sound which was another trendsetter. Jim Gamble was building consoles for them before he built Gamble consoles. Those two guys discovered the Columbia lot and realized the potential of 
pre-production on location. This had never happened before. Every tour that ever went out went to the first city, set up, and was shipping stuff in to try and get it right. You know, do the rehearsals there. These guys created a sound company and started renting out this. Talked to the owner of the lot and started renting out sound stages. It didn't take long before A1 Audio moved on the lot. Um, Olson Lighting moved on the lot. A whole bunch of people started moving on the lot. A company called World Stage rented two lots, and their concept was live performance videoed remotely. In other words, you'd be on camera, and there would be a, a, a projection screen in Buenos Aires and a projection in Cleveland, and, a, and then they would have cameras in those cities and a screen for the artists to see the audiences and say, how you doing, Detroit? And Detroit would go, this is, they, they did this by building a satellite truck outside the two sound stages and going up to the satellite, back down again, and then getting these really expensive Ida 4 projectors, which was state-of-the-art, and showing it. So they had one sound stage with whatever musicians they could cajole to play for them, and the other one where they're playing, and how do you keep people entertained? They had lasers on mirror balls. They had all. They were trying to. What do you do in between the acts? And so that was two of the sound stages. Then at some point they had a magazine called Road and Show, and who's out with what, and who's doing what. And then they had a, a restaurant, and then Fleetwood Mac moved its management onto the lot, and acts like Elton John and America and David Bowie are walking around the lot. And I mean, this was like going to Disneyland for audio, and this is like an unknown piece of history. That's the reason I wanted to tell you about this. No matter where you looked, you found somebody famous, some famous act. Then, on top of that, SIR saw the beauty of it and built their flagship facility on the lot. So now, whatever you needed was right there, ready to go. A1 Audio, use them for sound. Uh, I can't remember who else was there. Oh, well, mine, Maryland Sound, rented. Those guys, by the way, those guys blew it. After they got this whole career going, they ran out of luck. They either uh, blew it with money, drugs, whatever it was, they were out of the picture. But they had the only space on a lot that had a loading dock because lots don't have loading docks. Everything rolls in off the ground. But they had the one loading dock. So at this point, I get to the lot and Maryland Sound rents space in the, that area along with C-Factor Lighting from New York. So I was on the lot and that's how I met Al and that's how all that happened. But I was on the lot for this amazing experience and part of history that nobody knows, that deserves a documentary, that deserves a book, that deserves a Rolling Stone article, that deserves a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They invented pre-tour productions. Hmm. It never happened before. It was really an incredible time to be around. And it lasted for only two or three years. And then the, the owner of the lot sold it. And the guy who bought it wanted to rent it to television. And it went from 15 cents a square foot to 50 cents a square foot overnight, and they all moved out. Mm -hmm. And it was over. But I was there for it. <laughs> really an amazing, magical time. Because you never knew who was going to be walking by. And, and it wasn't like a guard gate, but nobody knew about it, except right. the people in there. So the acts could walk around and didn't have to worry about security or any of that stuff. The restaurant was there. It was really fun. It was a great time. I wanted to tell that story.
No, that's awesome. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I knew I knew Maryland Sound had a West Coast office for for a period of time. So, so, so you were that wasn't it though. That that wasn't their office. Oh, okay. ended, their West Coast office was in the eighties. This ended in the seventies. They oh, actually okay. had Mike Stahl was running their West Coast office, and Stan Miller had something to do with it also. I can't remember what it was, but I know they were, or maybe Mike Stahl ran Stan after that or before that. But uh, but Maryland Sound was going to actually move into the prop house, which was also had the, the tank where the floor would come up and they could fill it with water and do all that. So there big steel plates on it. But Maryland Sound and Pro Piano, renting pianos, were going to take over that just before it ended. Mm. And that must be when Maryland Sound moved to the, you know, they moved to the other place. Gotcha. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I, I do appreciate your time, um, uh, and all the, the, the pictures and articles you've sent me. It's been, it's been amazing. So, uh, and I look forward to, you know, still getting to know you some more and, and, and find out more, sto- more stories from you. I mean, I had such a good time doing my life that I love talking about it. It's fun. And it helps me remember when I, you know, I feel like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a good story. I only told that a year ago. It's, I still remember that story because I need my friends. My friends, some of them who have, you know, locked tight, uh, airtight uh, memories will say, don't you remember? I go, no, but thanks. Keep telling me, you know, I need that. I hope you enjoyed the beginning of this journey as we explore the history of live sound together. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would like to ask a few things. First, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Second, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Throughout the week, you will see various pictures and stories from the past. Lastly, but most importantly, please tell a friend. Help us get the word out about this project. Please check out and support the clinic. Their mission is simple. They exist to empower and heal roadies and their families by providing resources and services tailored to the struggles of the touring lifestyle. The clinic is committed to providing a safe space for roadies and their families to heal while off the road and to advocate for and empower them to obtain a healthy work environment while on the road. Go to theroadyclinic.com for more info. Do you have a story to tell? Or maybe you want to know more about a specific topic within the history of live sound. You can send me a message on our website, howwegotloud.com. After all, this is a journey for all of us to take together.